Well, if you enjoyed the music, it is the sermon. And that last song gets me every time. So you may have to bear with me a little bit this morning. Is he worthy? How do you know? Well, he says he is. And for the born-again believer, that's enough, right? But there's more to it than that. We tasted a little bit of that last week in our look at Psalm 117. We know He's worthy. We know He's worthy of praise. Not just because He's God, and that should be the default mindset of every created being, every thinking person, but because He has blown up our souls. We are born again, partakers of the divine nature. And no, not because He's made much of us, the man-centered gospel, but because he's enabled us to make much of him, the God-centered gospel. I know I said it about ten times last week, but Psalm 117 is everything. If you don't understand one seven, Psalm 117, you really don't understand much of the Bible. I think I said it about ten times. Right there. As we noted in the heart of the scriptures, God commands his people in two verses quite simply, praise me, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And we talked about that. There's an invitation implicit there. You remember, you may remember my paraphrase of Psalm 117. You may not like it. I like it a lot. Come and enjoy me, all nations. Come and enjoy me, all peoples. For my loving kindness is great toward my people, and my truth is everlasting. Come and enjoy me. And I challenge you, every time you see the command in the Bible to praise God, God is saying backhandedly, come and enjoy me. It's what praise is. Praise is the consummation of delight and adoration and joy and worship. I challenged you, don't come in here and dutifully praise God. He's not interested. We come because we love Him and we enjoy Him. The Attributes of God study that we started last Sunday is an exercise in delight that will never end. Infinite exuberance will be our eternal vocation. Some of you may remember the uh, memory verse we have for our study in the attributes of God. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and what? He will give you the desires of your heart. Now he's talking to his people. I'll give you the desire of your heart. What's the desire of the heart of the Christian? God. God is the preeminent desire of our heart. Every other desire is... Way down the list compared to him. We begin our study in the attributes of God simply by reviewing those magnificent chapters, those middle chapters of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 46, where God says, I'm God and you're not. Now, I love it when he talks like this. Some people don't like it when he talks like this. I love it when he talks like this. I'm God, you're not. I'm God, nobody else is God. I love these lofty chapters in Isaiah. Yahweh says, and I'll just ask you, what are the implications of this? Listen, what are the implications of what I'm about to read to you? What are the implications of this verse? Psalm 46, 9. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Now, what are the implications of that verse for you when you wake up in the morning, when you go to work, when you go to school, when you're on the Internet? 
What are the implications here? Based upon all that Yahweh has revealed about himself in the Bible, the obvious implication for anyone who's paying attention is you must worship him or you must flee. This message is all the way through the Bible. Worship or flee. I'm a great God. Worship or flee. That's the implication of not only the whole Bible, those middle chapters in Isaiah where God is explicit and he just keeps saying it and he doesn't stop saying it for a long time. Beloved, this is important. I love how he says it in Isaiah 44, 8. I was working on this this week and it made me laugh. It always makes me laugh. Isaiah 44, 8. God says, is there any God beside me? Or there is, it, are there, is there any other rock, capital R, rock? I know of none. God says, there's nobody like me. I know of no other gods <laughs> like me. I know of no other gods, the uncreated or unbegun God. I don't know any other God like that. I'm the only one. I love it when he talks like this. Who wants to worship a wimpy God? Now you tell me. Maybe you do. I don't think so. Who wants to worship a wimpy God? I don't. I want a God who makes me want to get on my face and prostrate myself because he is so infinitely beautiful and awesome. And beloved, that's Yahweh. Oh, thank you so much, Jennifer, for the songs. I, I'm still a little messed up, and you're responsible. So, thank you. Pretty good stuff. I caught a YouTube video some months ago. You know, it's what preachers do. We watch other preachers talk about preaching. <laughs> and there was a panel, uh, American preachers, random questions, and the question came, what is the biggest threat to the church today? I doubt many of you would maybe come up with this. Maybe you would. Not in this church. <laughs> hey, I just want to tell you, you don't know how blessed you are to have a man who fears God preaching. Do you realize there are a lot of pretenders out there who have no fear of God standing in pulpits? Now, one day they will fear him when they meet him. You are blessed. Paul Washer, I'm sure you know this name. Many of you know Paul Washer. He said without hesitation... What is the greatest, how was it worded, the biggest threat in the church today? Preachers! Preachers are the biggest threat in the church today. They will not stand here and magnify Yahweh. They won't do it. They're going to tell you it's mostly about you. They're going to tickle your ears and hope you feel good about the church. And you'll come back, give money, and sit in the pew. Can I lovingly say to you, I don't care about any of that. I don't. If you don't love Yahweh, don't come back here. That's how I feel about it. Now, Brad will have to clean up. He'll have to clean up my mess. You can clean up my mess, brother. But listen, I'm just being transparent with you. It matters what we do when we come in the house of God. It matters. It matters. It's the most important thing. I know now, some of you don't believe this. It's the most important thing you do all week is sit under the preached word. You know, preaching is the foolishness of preaching. I, I don't know why God did it, but that's what he did. He ordained preaching. It's what he did. I don't know why he did it. It pleased him to do it. Washer said, you know, well, it's all the silliness and superficiality. You've been in those churches. It drives me crazy. And, of course, he said, there simply is no fear of God in your average pulpit. The, the old dead theologian, he said it pretty well. He said, you know, when your average Christian gets around to reading the Bible, they realize they don't like Yahweh at all. These kinds of folks, you know, those kinds of folks don't tend to tolerate preachers like me. Most of those kinds of folks will still go to church. You know, there's something about 
they want to they want to be known as a Christian. They want to be seen as a Christian. But they have a fierce distaste for Yahweh and all that he says. You guys know this firsthand. There is a fierce distaste in what is called Christianity. For moral absolutes, for instance. For wrath. For hell. For predestination and election. You guys are intimately aware of some of these things. John Piper, I know I quote him too much, but he says, man, if you're going to take a long look at God, and I love this, I love this. If you're going to take a long look at God in the Bible, you have to come with counterintuitive. You have to come expecting counterintuitive wonders. Don't you love that? Counterintuitive wonders. And then he goes on and he says, and you have to be ready to engage in new categories of thinking. God's bigger than you. Of course you don't understand it all. What makes you think you're supposed to understand it all? Let God be God. Why don't you be you? Why don't you be the clay? Why don't you be humble? Why don't you be repentant? And when I point at you, I'm pointing at me. Why don't we do that? Piper continues, God is vastly greater, stranger, and more dreadful than you have ever realized. Listen, I've been doing this for a long time. I know some of you don't know God like this. I just want to say you've got some work to do. You've got some work to do. As one old Puritan said, a comprehended God is not God. Some of us, in your average church, have got God in a box, understanding this is how he acts. This is what he does. And, and I, 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 I get all of it. There's no tension in my head. I get everything he says. <laughs> Beloved, that's not Yahweh. We're going to look at a verse in a minute. It says, his understanding is inscrutable. What does that mean? It means we can't understand his understanding. We can't penetrate it. We can't go there. We can't get that high. We can't get that wide. We can't get that deep. His thoughts are unfathomable to us. Without question, the single greatest miscalculation of mankind is, the psalmist says it in Psalm 50, 21, you thought I was just like you. He's not like us, beloved. No, he's not. God says, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. The inhabitants of the earth are what? Tell me. Are, are what? You know, are what? Like grasshoppers. <laughs> are you getting some sense of Yahweh here? This is how we're supposed to think about him and ourselves. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 15, 17, and 22. In relation to mankind, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8, and 9. And most of you are aware of the Apostle's words of praise as he closes out in Romans 11. You know, when you read O, <laughs> I'm just going to challenge, do you feel that? <laughs> Paul's just written, you know, nine chapters of, or ten or eleven chapters of breathtaking theology, and he just, he, it's just, oh. It, it, do you feel that? You're supposed to feel that. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Paul is saying, who has ever fully understood Yahweh? No one! 
What man ever counseled God? Nobody. <laughs> to what man has God ever been indebted? No one. He doesn't owe you anything. And yet he gives us everything. Now, you know, this should make you want to get on your face a little bit if you actually believe that. And what is everything? Psalm 117. He gives us himself. Last week, we talked about why anything, why everything. Well, it's right there at the, it's right there at the end of, of, that, of Romans 11 there. I think verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be what? It's what we talked about a lot last week. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is the bottom line, tragic, damning reality for the vast majority of humanity who arrogantly and foolheartedly refuse to acknowledge and receive the verses I just shared with you. They see themselves, as Pink says, as, as little sovereigns. They're just running their own life. Oh, really? Do you know how to make your diaphragm move again? Do you know how to make your heart move again? Do you know how to make your brain fire again? I don't think so. You think you're a little sovereign? You think you're in charge? You think you're running your life without any consideration of who God says he is and what he expects from you as his creature? <laughs> you're a creature. <laughs> It's the big guy problem, my seminary professor. You remember Keith Lee? He says, you know, and I went to a Southern Baptist seminary, you know. He said, you know, the problem in the SBC is your average person in the pew thinks God's just a big guy. Hey, if you came in here thinking that, I hope to disabuse you of that damning misconception. So I'm going to share a quote with you from John Piper. And it's so fundamental. It's so foundational. It's so utterly true. I printed it off, I framed it, and I nailed it to my wall, and I look at it every day. I say, Jim, why do, you, why do you do that? Because I never want to forget my principal job as an elder, a pastor, a preacher, a teacher, and just a Christian. So in this quote... The good doctor simply and profoundly captures mankind's baseline problem. And here's the baseline problem. The baseline problem that he reveals to us, it's why people covet and are envious and are perpetually dissatisfied. It's why people are unloving and ungracious and unkind. Now, his quote's going to reveal to us why we engage in these kinds of things. It's why people are vain and self-absorbed and arrogant and haughty and prideful. It's why children old enough to know better disrespect their parents. It's why people engage in self-pity and see themselves as victims. It's why people take the Lord's name in vain, using it as an exclamation or slang. It's why men, and I understand some women, look at pornography. It's why people hoard money and are selfish and are not faithful stewards of what God has given them. It's why spouses leave, abandon, and divorce one another. It's why parents abort their children. It's why people abuse their bodies with drug and alcohol. It's why people fornicate, commit adultery, engage in homosexuality. It's why false religion exists, including pseudo-Christianity. It's why hate, greed, vanity, insecurity, boredom, indifference, lack of purpose, discontent, Intent, hopelessness, etc., 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 ad nauseum exists. The, the list is endless. So, as I share this quote with you, I want you to examine yourself. Are you guilty? Are you guilty of this kind of negligence and carelessness and inattention? If what we talked about last week is true, if God made the world for God, and He did, and if God is the one for whom we exist, and He is, then Piper has diagnosed our problem. Here's what he says. 
I want you to think about it. Most people never reckon with the magnitude of what it means for God to be God. Now, you're a churchgoer. Supposedly, you have reckoned with the magnitude of what it means for God to be God. But I think Piper's absolutely right about this. And I think many uh, folks who call them, themselves Christians and many folks who go to church regularly have never genuinely reckoned with the magnitude of what it means for all that Yahweh says about himself. I believe this is essentially true. It's, I don't nail very many things on my wall. But I nailed this on my wall. Beloved, I'm not asking you if you prayed the prayer or if you joined the church or if you're a nice person. I'm asking you if you have ever reckoned with the magnitude of what it means for Yahweh to be Yahweh. That's what I'm asking you. That's the question of the hour. So what's Piper saying? He said, have you ever really considered it? Have you regarded it? Have you thought about it? Have you thought about the great size and greatness and scale and importance and significance and enormity and weight and vastness and immensity of the reality of God being God? We could say it's the process of weighing out the import of having a creator before whom we will give an account. Have you done this? Have you done this? I mean, really done this. I mean, really done this. To weigh it out. To consider and regard the importance and immensity and consequence of what it means to have a God like Yahweh. Have you reckoned with the God who says, Isaiah 45, 5 and 7, I am the Lord, there is no other besides me, there is no God. I am the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I'm the Lord who does all these. Have you reckoned with the God who says, Deuteronomy 32, 39, See now that I am He, there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. No one can deliver out of my hand. Have you reckoned with the God who asks this question? Jeremiah 5, 22. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble in my presence? <laughs> have you reckoned with the God who says in Jeremiah chapters 6 through 13, Behold, I am bringing terror. Some of you who don't know your Bibles, you don't even realize that the word terror is in it. And the reason it's in it is because Yahweh is coming in judgment. God says he's talking about his, his people in the Old Testament. They refuse to know me. I will annihilate them. This is Jeremiah chapter 6 through 13. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. I will show them no pity, nor be sorry, nor have compassion that I should not destroy them. Beloved, all I'm trying to do is communicate to you. You've got to deal. You've got to reckon with the magnitude of what it means for Yahweh to be there. And he's the God who says these things. Hey, you know, if you don't like it, don't get mad at me. <laughs> this is what God says. Have you reckoned with the God who says, Revelation 20, 15, if anyone's name is not written in the book of life, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. You know, C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis uh, alludes to this in referring to the terrifying reality in which we live. It's Coram Deo. Do you know what Coram Deo means? Before the face of God. You live before the face of God 24-7. There's nothing he doesn't see. There's nothing he doesn't know. Can 
Can I say this? If you have not truly reckoned with the magnitude of what it means for God to be God, you will be like the blind man Jesus talks about over in Luke 6.39. You will fall in a pit. You will fall in the pit. God expects us to reckon with the magnitude of what it means for Him to be God. And then bring the implications down into the minutia of our lives. That's what He expects. So my very simple goal this morning is that none of us would leave this place without understanding the very basic but categorically urgent fact of being a human being, which is a dangerous proposition. The world is trying to entertain you all the way to hell. Distract you all the way to hell. It was the last sermon I preached to the Italian church in Milan. Beloved, it is dangerous to be a human being. Because there is a dangerous God who will come in judgment. And if you are not reconciled to Him through the shed blood of Christ, if you don't run to the cross, God's wrath will land on you forever. We must reckon with the magnitude of what it means for God to be God and the fact that He is dreadfully provoked. So in these last minutes, since the um, attributes of God's study, we looked at those middle chapters. I'm just going to hit a couple of highlights of what God says about Himself there in those middle chapters of Isaiah. Um, Isaiah 41, 4b, Yahweh says, I, the Lord, am the first and the last. I am He. It's what... It's what God told Moses when Moses asked him his name. And, and Yahweh says, I am who I am. It means the same thing. Yahweh means I am who I am. I am who I am means Yahweh. It's just God's name. That's how it's translated. And all of the unfathomable implications of the fact that he is I am who is I am. So I just want to do something interesting. You may never, never have done this before. God's name is a message. Now, anytime you, I know you know this. Anytime you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in, in the Bible, you know that that's his name. That's Yahweh. That's what that means. If you don't know, that's going to mean something to you, I hope, going forward. And he uses it, oh, 6,800 times. Here's a message to you about him 6,800 times. I'm God, you're not. You say, Jim, that's, listen, listen. Um, This is pretty important. <laughs> I don't want to run off on, on a tangent here. Every time you see God's name in Scripture, He's reminding you that you must reckon with the magnitude of what it means for Him to be God and you to be clay. Here's a few things God is saying in His name 6,800 times. He never had a beginning. Have you reckoned with the magnitude of that? He just is. Have you reckoned with the magnitude of that? You know, sometimes we put these things out of our mind because they're, t they're impossible for us to fully grasp. But my point is, dwell on them, meditate on these truths, and get as far as you can get with them. And then, of course, get on your face and worship. Yahweh is absolute being. He is what is. Before He creates, there is nothing. He is absolute reality. Before creation, there was only God. Everything that is not God depends on God. All, all things are contingent upon Him. The two trillion uh, galaxy cosmos is by comparison to God nothing. As Piper said, it's a peanut in His pocket. The cosmos. It's a peanut in His pocket. 
And you think you can live fast and loose with this God? God is constant, absolute, infinite perfection. He cannot be improved upon. These are things he's saying to you when you read the name Yahweh. He has no constraints. He does whatever he pleases, whenever he pleases, however he pleases. He infinitely transcends all. He's infinitely important, infinitely valuable, infinitely worthy. I want you to listen to how God says these things in those middle chapters of Isaiah. I'll give you the verse. I, I would prefer maybe that you don't try to follow me in the Bible, but you can try if you like. Isaiah 40, verse 18, God says, to whom, will, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with Him? Isaiah 40, 25. To whom then will you liken me that I should be as equal, says the Holy One? Isaiah 43, 10, 11, and 13. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord. I am God. Even from eternity I'm God. I'm the first and the last. There's no God besides me. Who is like me? That's Isaiah 44, 6 and 7. I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I am the Lord and there is no other. Isaiah 45, 5 and 6. And there's no other God besides me. For I am God and there is no other. Isaiah 45, 21, 22. To whom then will you liken me and make me his equal and compare me that we should be alike? For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Those last two in chapters 46, verse 5 and 9. I know it sounds like I'm reading, the, I'm, I'm, I'm like repeating myself a couple of verses and I'm simply repeating them. No, he just keeps saying this. He just keeps saying. I hope he is successful in making a point in your heart and mind. Every time you read Yahweh in the Bible, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, he means for you to reckon with all of that. God means for you to reckon with the fact that there is no one like Him. He means for you to seriously deal with the magnitude of what that means. Every day He grants you life. You remember Job's words? We'll, talk, we'll probably talk about Job next week. You remember when God finally came to Job? You remember what Job did? This is what you and I should do regularly. Job says, Behold, I am insignificant. Now, this is a blessing to understand. As compared to God, you're insignificant. But on the other hand, we have to remember He bled out for us. <laughs> you feel the tension here? <laughs> it's amazing. But Job continues, I lay my hand on my mouth. Amen? Next time you start to question God, I counsel you to get your hand on your mouth as fast as you can and get as humble as fast as you can. Who are you, oh man, to question God? Good words to remember. Good words to remember. It's one reason God never stops reminding us who we are in comparison to Him. You know the Genesis 2, 7 verse, what are we made of? Some people are happy because they're, they're really proud because they think they evolved from a monkey. Listen, man, nothing quite so glamorous. You're dust. You were dust. <laughs> Till God breathed life into you. You were dust. You're nothing. And you're going back to dust. I, I had a chance to talk with a young woman who works in a nursing home. Uh, this week, and she was talking about that transition at the end and how humble, you know. Obviously, some people still have that rage in them, but she said many people realize who they are before God in those last days that they are dust. Listen, if you're 16 years old, it's real good to remember you're dust. 
It's a real good remember. Keep you humble. Keep you repentant. Do you remember? My friend calls me a worm all the time. One of my good friends, he, he says, you're a worm. And I, I okay, I get it. Because, because Bildad told, told Job, he said, that, he said that mankind is like a worm before him. <laughs> he never lets me forget that I am a worm. And you know, God says it all the way through the Bible about your lifespan here. It's like a vapor, a breeze, a shadow, a breath, a phantom. Whereas he's eternal, you are an afterthought. You are a footnote. Less than a footnote as compared to God. I'm not saying you don't have ultimate worth. Because you do, because God created you in his image. But I'm saying by comparison, I want you to think about these things. We'll see our worth at the end. The worth God has given us. Also implicit in his name here in these middle chapters of Yahweh, is, in the middle chapters of Isaiah, is that he is the ex nihilo creator. He just, he just speaks things into existence. You know, the, the old Puritan said the whole world cannot make a fly. But God just breathes galaxies into existence. Have you reckoned with the magnitude of that? Fun fact for faith. How about fun fact for learning to tremble? How about that? You know, I wrote that book. Everything says glory. Refuting Darwinism. It's the stupidest thing men have ever believed. And I got to tell you. I've never been so humbled as simply to look at him as creator. I was radically changed. <laughs> Two or three years of just looking at God as creator. It'll make you humble. It'll make you humble. God means for you to reckon with the magnitude of the whole creature creator reality. You know, it wouldn't be a bad thing for you to look in the mirror every morning and remind yourself what you are as compared to Him. Might be a good discipline. Might be a good practice. Isaiah expounds on this aspect of Yahweh in those middle chapters. And I, I'll, I'm just, I'll give you the... the I'll, hey, if you want my notes, you can have them. I'll email them to you. But I'll give you the reference after I read the text. God says, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created the stars. The one who leads forth their hosts by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and strength and his power. Not one of them is missing. I googled it. How many stars are there? Nobody really knows. Some knucklehead put an estimate out there on Google. 200 sextillion. Who knows what 200 sextillion is? 200 billion trillion. <laughs> Nobody knows. Only Yahweh knows, and he knows their name. That's Isaiah 40, 26. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary. His understanding is inscrutable. This is a verse I referenced earlier. Uh, chapter 40, verse 28. His understanding is impossible to understand for you and me. With our two and a half pounds of gray matter, he is the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who, sp who spread out the earth and its offspring who gives breath and spirit to the people who walk on it. 42.5. Again, all these verses are in Isaiah. I am the Lord your creator. I have created you. We talked about it last week. Why are you here? For His glory. For His glory. I created you for my glory. You whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Isaiah 43.1 and 7. Thus says the one who forms you, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. Chapter 40, 24. 
I, the Lord, have created the heavens and the earth, chapter 45, 8. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, <laughs> the utter insanity of man. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Isaiah 45, 9. Again, these are verses where God says, I'm the creator. That should matter to you a lot. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands and ordained all of their hosts. Okay, who knows what the largest star is? He mentions the hosts of heaven, and I assume he's talking about heavenly bodies here. I love this. The largest known star is Ui Scuti. Listen to this. More than a million earths will fit into our sun. Five billion of our sons will fit inside UI Scooty. And Isaiah 45, 18, He is the God who formed the earth and made it, and He established it. It was that great verse in Habakkuk, and we'll, we'll, we'll hit it in pink. I think Habakkuk is saying, that all I just said is the hiding of God's power. Ui Scuti is the hiding of God's power. Two trillion galaxies is the hiding of God's power. Deal with that. Reckon with the magnitude of that. Earth is not even a pixel on, you know, most of these stellar, these, these stellar photographs. It's not even a pixel. I think... God means for us to learn something here. <clears throat> so, how is it possible that the creature does not reckon with his creaturehood every single day? How is that possible? How can it not be <clears throat> the creature's paramount concern and consideration in every circumstance? You may remember, and you can turn there with me if you like, Jeremiah 18. You may remember the Lord commanded Jeremiah to go down to the potter's house. Jeremiah 18, verses 1 and following. God was going to teach the prophet something by way of illustration. And if you get what God is teaching Jeremiah here, you may be grasping the magnitude of what it means for God to be God. Jeremiah 18. The word... Verse 1, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise, go down to the potter's house. I'm going to teach you some stuff, right? Verse 3, so I went. Verse 4, he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter <laughs> to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as the potter does? Can't I do whatever I want with you? Of course! He continues, Declares the Lord, Behold, like the clay in the potter's hands, you are in my hand, O house of Israel. Takes us back to that Isaiah 45, 9 that I read to you just a moment ago. Woe to the one who quarrels with this God. <laughs> How is it that the clay will blame and indict and accuse the potter? Do you see the stupidity here? Listen, I hear this all the time, man. I, I've been doing this for a long time, and I've heard a lot of people indicting God, and I, I counsel them with all humility. You have got to stop doing this. You know, my counseling is a little, it's not quite so in your face as the preaching. You have got to stop that. Who do you think you are? And you guys know, if you know Romans 9, the Holy Spirit takes the Apostle Paul to this very same place in Romans 9. You can turn with me there if you like. 
We know that um, in Romans 9, the Holy Spirit is laying out the absolute sovereignty of God in the salvation of His people. We know that men in general and very many who claim to be Christians hate this unqualified prerogative of God. But God, the Holy Spirit, and the Apostle Paul could care less if they hate it or not. The Spirit knows that the God accusers will accuse Yahweh of injustice. But then he writes, Romans 9, 18. He writes, so then God has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel of honorable use and another of common use? Verse 22, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Now, you can try to explain it away if you like, or you can honestly deal with it, but you'll have to reckon with the magnitude of what it means for a creator who talks like this. He never apologizes for how he saves his people. Now, I know there are a lot of preachers who do, but not here. Not in this place. You have no idea. You have no idea what a blessing you have here. You have no idea. Probably some of you do. Some of you went through a lot of fire. So I get that. I hope you appreciate what you have here. God doesn't get preached like this very many places. They won't hear it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear that God is God and I'm not. I don't want to hear it. That's, that's, that's modern evangelicalism. And listen, I want to say, you know, you can read Romans 9 and in a purely academic way, and it doesn't, it doesn't affect you. You know, you can get your ego in there. You, you, you can think, well, of course, of course God chose me. Why wouldn't he choose me? But then when you read it with hell in view, and what the Bible says, you, who you truly are, before the work of God is in, done in your heart. And you'll tremble. And you'll realize the only reason I don't go to hell is because God is a sovereign God of grace. That's the only reason. And he's bought me out of sin and death. He did that. And yes, you must repent and believe. You're responsible. You must repent and believe. You must do that. Yahweh's God and nobody else is. Back to Joe, back to the text Joe read. To whom then will you liken me that I should be his equal? Says the Holy One of God. So the question is, or was, is he worthy? I don't know what you think. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he is. Um, in fact, I know he is. So we're just going to turn over to Revelation 5 and close out like this. If you had your antenna on, that last song we sang, Is He Worthy? There were two verses taken from, from Revelation 5 in the lyrics. Is He worthy? Is Jesus Christ worthy? Is Yahweh the Son worthy? Is He worthy? Revelation 5, 2. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy? To open the book and to break its seals. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. 
And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. So as to open the book and its seal, seven seals. Verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Hey, man, you shouldn't be singing. Christians are, you know, Christians are the only religion that really sing. You know why we sing? Because we've dealt with the magnitude of what it means for God to be God. And we realize we've been saved by grace. That's why we sing. That's why we'll sing forever. <laughs> and they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom uh, uh, and priests to our God. And, the, and, and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen? You are not worthy, but He has made you worthy. He is worthy. And listen, I, I, I don't want you to live your Christianity like everybody else lives their professed faith in some God. Like it's peripheral to me. Man, I, 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 want, you, I want you to take it on board. I want, you to deal with the, uh, I want you to reckon with the magnitude of what it means for God to be God every day. I want you to make much of Jesus. It's what I want for myself. What an awesome God. Let's pray together.